The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, let's take our Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 27. And uh, while you're looking for that scripture, I'd like to read a few verses that will help us get into the discussion today. In, in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, concerning the birth of Jesus, the scripture says, Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, there came wise men from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and are come to worship him. Then in verses 8 through 10, And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search diligently for the child, and when ye have found him, bring me word again, that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And then in the Gospel of Luke, also at the birth of Jesus, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Then from the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 6, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness, and will hold thine hand, and will keep thee, and give thee for a covenant of the people, for a light of the Gentiles. Isaiah 49, verse 6, And he said, It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles, that thou mayest be my salvation unto the end of the earth. Then back to the New Testament in John chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Now there's a common thread that runs through all those verses. I think you can see it well. And that is the message that Jesus is light. In John 8 verse 12 Jesus speaks there and he says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And then just a few days prior to his death, he spoke these words in John 12, 35. Yet a little while, the light is with you. While you have the light, walk while you have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light... Believe in the light, that ye may be children of the light. Now all those verses are very interesting because Jesus told the people that very soon the light would go out. And when light turns to darkness, then you know that something very serious is happening. And what Jesus is telling the people here, that it was time for them to turn to him, it was time to them, for them to convert, to come to that light, and why did they need to turn to him then? Because the darkness was coming. 
Now, of course, Jesus was speaking spiritually, and he was talking about the long night of their souls that they'd experienced because of rejection of him. But I also think that Jesus had in mind what the Jews and the Gentiles were about to do to him on that day that they put him on the cross. Now, we come then to our text in Matthew 27 and verse number 45, which says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now, you notice that that passage is not like the others that we've read. Those passages were about light. But here we have a passage that is about darkness, that it was dark in the middle of the day. Or as Thomas Spurgeon said, who he was actually the son of Charles Spurgeon, he preached and he said, it was midnight at midday. Oh, Matthew 25, verse 45, 20, uh, excuse me, 27, verse 45. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some of them that stood there when they heard that said, This man calleth for Elias. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. The rest said, Let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now my sermon today is the darkest day. Verse number 45 once again says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. Now this day of darkness, I believe, was actually a Thursday. I know that it's popular to believe, most people do believe, that Christ was crucified on a Friday. I don't actually think that a Friday crucifixion is accurate. I think it was a Thursday, and that gives ample time for Jesus to fulfill his own prophecy when he said that he would be three days and three nights in the tomb. And we do know this, that Jesus arose on a Sunday morning, and so we back up from there, and I just can't see how it's possible that you fit in three days and three nights or parts of days between Friday and Saturday. So I think that it was a Thursday crucifixion. But today, the main point here is to talk about this day in which there was darkness, darkness in the daytime, and that's when God decided that he would shut out the lights of, of all the universe, I think, when Christ suffered on the cross. Now, in the second part of the message next week, we're going to discuss the words that he spoke in that darkness, and those are recorded in two of the gospel accounts. And then in the third message, I, I want to talk to you about what Jesus did in his sufferings and the other miracles that also occurred on this particular day. Now, first, though, today, I want to talk to you about this period of darkness. The Scripture says that Darkness occurred at the sixth hour and continued until the ninth hour. In Jews, the Jews' reckoning of time, the sixth hour would have been 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock noon, and the ninth hour would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And that's because the Jewish day began at 6 o'clock in the morning. I mean, regardless of the time of year, there's no daylight savings time or anything like that, but regardless of the time of year, at 6 o'clock, regardless of the amount of daylight that there was, that's when their day began. And reading from the Gospel of Mark, we, we know that, that the day began at 6, and there in Mark's Gospel it says that Jesus was put on the cross at the third hour. So that means that at 9 o'clock in the morning, they stretched out Jesus on the cross 
and they nailed his hands and his feet. They attached that placard to the top of his cross and they, they put it up there and then they lifted up the cross and they set it down in its hole and they tamped it to hold it secure. And Jesus was right then in that moment where he was going to be from, as the point of the entire life, of his entire life, the reason that he came into the world. His purpose is that cross. His purpose was death and that's always the purpose from the time that he took his first breath from his mother's womb. Now, a moment ago, I read the prophecy of Simeon, and in that prophecy, uh, also in that prophecy, Simeon said to his mother Mary that a sword shall pierce through your soul. And what he meant was that she was going to be there to see her own son die on this cross. And so for three hours, from nine o'clock in the morning, from the early morning, they were in the early morning, they were in the sun. For three hours there was light, and in that three hours Jesus was mocked. He was railed on by thieves and by the crowd, by the religious leaders, by the soldiers, by people that just passed by. And there they looked at him, and he was beaten, and he was bloody, and he was a mess. He was naked hanging, uh, hanging there before, before them. And they just heaped on Jesus all the shame that they could while he was hanging there in the daylight from 9 o'clock until noon. And so for three hours, they stood in that light and they were able to look at him. Now the last time that we talked about this, we also spoke of a glorious transformation that happened then. Uh, that God saved somebody during that time. And it, it's just... Uh, uh, it's just a, a miraculous thing that God did when, when he reached out there and he saved this, this thief that was hanging on a cross that was next to Jesus. And so in the light of the morning, uh, that, that, that silence of Jesus as he hung on the cross was broken only three times. And one of those times was when he spoke to that thief on the cross and there he saved him and told him that he would be in paradise with him on that day. Now, there weren't any other conversions, as far as we know, during that three hours while there was light. None of the leaders came to him. None of the soldiers repented and came to him. None of the onlookers believed in him. Only this one criminal. And then it happened. At 12 o'clock, in the brightest part of the day, when the sun is at its zenith, God flipped the switch on the breaker panel of the universe, and he shut out all of the lights. I have to confess to you now, I don't know how God did that. I don't know how God could cancel all light. I mean, that had to be a cosmic event that was so staggering that defies imagination. There's no way we can actually explain how that he could do that. Now, you might even say that light drives the universe because light was the first thing in creation. God said, let there be light. And that became a symbol that God had energized that, that chaotic mass of matter that was without form and void. When God said, let there be light, that's when the universe suddenly leaped out of its chaos. And the world was lightened. And so you think, what would the world be if there is no light? Well, that would have to be a world that's lost. It has to be a world that's turned completely upside down. And it's a terrible indication that God has brought on the world the severest of all judgments. I don't know how God did this. I, I, I don't know how God held the world together when he reversed the laws of physics and shut out the lights. 
as it was when the earth was without void, was with void and without full form and without and it was void. But I do know that God holds the world in His hands. And we've just read that in the Psalms 95 a moment ago. God holds the world in His hands, and the laws of physics are His laws. He controls all cosmic forces, and He can suspend nature any time that He chooses. The evidence of that is what we see in the prediction of the end of the world, where Isaiah prophesied. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heavens shall be rolled together as a scroll, and all their hosts shall fall down as the leaf falleth from off the vine, and as a falling fig from the fig tree. Now when the heavens are dissolved, there's going to be darkness. And so I don't know how God could, could make a, a premature darkness when he shut out the lights of heaven and he actually accomplished that without destroying the entire universe in the process. But we know this from reading scripture that God had fiddled with light before. Remember in the book of Joshua where God made the sun stand still? How that God held off darkness? He allowed the sun to keep shining when it should have been dark? And do you remember that in Hezekiah's time that he rolled back the clock by making the sun go backwards in the sky? I mean, the sun was sinking towards the horizon and then it stopped and then it reversed and it rose in the sky by 10 degrees. Well, for those of us that are amateur astronomers, we know that the only way that God could do that was to stop the rotation of the earth. That God stopped the rotation and stopped time. In, in Joshua's time... God stopped time. In Hezekiah's time, God reversed time. They went back in time. You ever wondered, is it possible to go back in time? Well, according to the Bible, it is because God did it. He made the sun go backwards, and that's going back in time. How did God do it? There's no explanation. He's just God. There's no way that the earth stops revolving without destroying life on the planet. But God can adjust the creation any time that he wants. 99.99999% of the time, everything goes just like it was the day before. Everything works just like it always did. We don't expect any changes in the physical laws. And that's the reason that NASA can build a spacecraft and send it out of the solar system and know where it's going, when it's going to get there, because there are just natural laws... There are physical laws that they just, they're just the same all the time. That's how they're able to plan that. And so whenever God decides that he's going to suspend physical laws, then you know something extre extremely extraordinary has to be happening. And that's what I think we see at the crucifixion. We see this, this short sentence in the Bible that says that it was dark in the middle of the day, and most of you have probably never stopped to think about the impossibility of that darkness. How could that happen? And that was a cosmic display that shows that God controls it all. And God demonstrated his great power by just shutting out the lights. And of course, there are many people that dispute it. They say it can't happen. And so they'll offer natural explanations for the phenomenon. Even Bible scholars, many of them are skeptical about it. And so they give you their measured explanations of how that happened. But that something did happen, there is no doubt. I mean, the biblical account is not the only account that we have of this. Tertullian, in the 2nd century, spoke about this darkness as if it was very common knowledge. There, for years, there's been a claim that there's a, a letter that was sent to Tiberius Caesar that spoke of this day of darkness. 
Early church fathers who lived just right after this happened, in the second century, they, uh, the first full century after Christ was here, they, they began, or they did, talk about this darkness that happened on this particular day. But the most convincing proof that we have that it actually happened is the Bible itself. And you say, well, how? How could the Bible be the most convincing proof? Well, it's because there were many, many witnesses that were there at the crucifixion. There were many people that saw this, and later when the gospel accounts were written, and this was preached throughout the Roman Empire, there was no one who stood up and said, that's not true, that, that never happened, because they knew that it happened. And that's one of the ways that you know the Bible is true, because no one disputes these kinds of accounts. You don't find those, because this was actually the power of God, and people knew that something happened. Oh, the Bible's been proved uh, totally reliable in its prophecies. Listen to this amazing verse in Amos 8, verse 9. It shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. But despite the Bible's clear predictions of it, that this darkness was a spectacular God thing, there's still those that offer natural explanations. A popular one is that there was a strong desert wind, a shirako, that stirred up dust and it blotted out the sun. Uh, you've probably seen pictures of those. Not long ago, I was watching, uh, I don't know, a YouTube video or something. They showed uh, Phoenix being engulfed by this huge dust storm. And you could see the blackness of that dust as it rolled in and covered everything. But that's the point. After the dust storm, what do you have? Lots of dust. Everything's covered in dust. Now, if that happened here, do you think that a gospel author would have missed mentioning this, this dust cloud? I mean, and, and it covered everything with dust. Wouldn't that be an omen from God? And wouldn't somewhere we, we would read in the Old Testament uh, that there's a spiritual connection to it? That somewhere in there we would read about dust clouds and choking dust? I mean, why don't we read that in the Old Testament? We have all kinds of predictions about the cross. And then there are others that say, well, it was an eclipse. In Luke 23, Luke used a word that's often used for an eclipse. But the real meaning of that word, do you know what it is? To fail utterly. His word in Luke 23 says that the sun failed utterly. It was darkened. But the most convincing evidence that it wasn't an eclipse is the time of year that this happened and the length of the darkness. This is at Passover season. We know when that is. Passover season. That's the season of the full moon. And it is scientifically impossible to have a solar eclipse at a full moon. Because that's the sun and the moon are at opposite ends of the earth. You can't have a solar eclipse at a full moon. And then, uh, an eclipse lasts for only a few minutes. Well, most of you have seen an eclipse. We had one not long ago, a couple, few years ago, where we stood out in the parking lot right back here. And we, uh, we observed the eclipse. And you remember how, how stunning that, that that was. It happened on a Sunday during a church service. Man, we just went over the majesty of God during that, during that particular service. But that lasted how long? Just a few minutes. And it was over. This is a darkness that lasted for three hours. Who ever heard of an eclipse that lasted for three hours? Now, if you want to explain it as an eclipse, 
then you better give God the glory for that because he would have to suddenly move the, the natural locations of the sun and the moon and then he'd have to stop the rotation of the earth as well. So give God the glory. So we don't have any choice here but really to accept the biblical account of this and I don't think that we ought to have any trouble with that at all unless we have some kind of a strange notion that God does not control everything. That God's not actually the creator. That he's powerless to control what he created. And if you go that far, the cross is meaningless to you. I mean, you really, you, you ought to just shut it down right there. Go find something else to do that you think is more worth your while because you can't believe the Bible and believe the cross unless you believe what it says right here happened. Well, let me say that to you another way. There, there's a huge reason why you cannot be a skeptic and a Bible-believing Christian at the same time. You cannot believe the miracles of the Bible and the creation account of the Bible and discount what happens here at the crucifixion. You say this is false, then say the crucifixion is false. There's no believability for it at all. Well, the next question that we have to ask, and this is a little bit unusual sermon probably, but you think, well, the next question we have to ask is, where was the darkness? Was it just in Jerusalem? Was it uh, just in Israel? Was it extensive as the Roman Empire? We really don't know the answer to that question because God had localized darkness before. I want to talk to you about the plagues in Egypt in just a few minutes, but you remember there was a plague of darkness in Egypt. All of Egypt was dark except for one spot. In Goshen, the Bible says that's where Israel lived. There was plenty of light. But there was a thick darkness over Egypt. I mean, it was pitch black, a darkness that could be felt. No one even stirred out of their places for three days because of that darkness. A plague of darkness that God brought on the Egyptians, but the Bible says that there was light in the houses of the Israelites. I was watching a program the other night about this and in this program they showed the Egyptians in their homes and they were, you know, walking around with their candles and they were seeing and it was dark outside. That's not what happened. Oh, the, there was complete darkness. They didn't have the, they couldn't even light a fire and see because God shut it all out. How do I know that? Exodus 10.23 says that the Israelites had light in their dwellings and there was darkness for the Egyptians. So this is a, just a spectacular God thing. Uh, was it localized darkness? Well, I don't really know. A couple of years ago, I took um, Joseph Nabonita. Well, we, we met in Kentucky, and we went to Mammoth Cave. That is the world's longest cave. And we were into the cave about two miles, and they shut out all the lights. And when they shut out the lights, you can't see anything. You can't even see your hand in front of your face. If you have a luminescent watch... Uh, just a little bit of light from there stands out like a beacon from a lighthouse. It's so dark. But God had localized darkness before. Uh, that, that's, that's happened. But I don't think that the darkness of the crucifixion was like that. An eclipse doesn't produce that kind of darkness. I, I tend to think that nobody could see anything. When God shut out the lights for these three hours, I, I'm not sure that they could even see a faint outline of Jesus as he suffered this particular part of his agony, the worst part of his agony in that three hours. Was it localized like in Egypt? I don't know. I tend to think that, the God, that God wanted the whole world to know that something's going on, something different from anything that ever happened before. I mean, even in those places where nobody could even know about Israel at all. 
Other parts of the world where they have no idea that there's this nation called Israel, what happens there. I think there was darkness there too. Now, as you know, half of the world is dark at one time anyway. I mean, only one half of the world is exposed to the light of the sun at one time. The other half is dark anyway. So what I think that we have here is actually a tribulation-type darkness. And that's where the darkness is that the sun, the moon, and all the stars of heaven are all shut out so that nobody can see anything. I kind of think that's what happened. And I think it was for the purpose of God showing that there is something going on here that God is in control of all the universe and the gods that these people worship, no matter where they were, were powerless to do anything about this. This is God's amazing power that's being shown. And he's showing that he's more powerful than any gods that they worshipped. I think that's what he did with Egypt. They worshipped the sun god, Ra. And they thought that... Oh, their sun god, he'll take care of things. But what did God show them? He has no power at all against this god. This is the god that controls it all. He, he has power over all false gods. So can I prove to you that the whole world had no light? Not really. But it seems to me that the scripture infers it by the times of terrible judgment and what God has promised to do to people who don't believe in Christ. There's no judgment than that's greater than what happens here when God shut out the lights. Now that brings me to the next thought, and that is the purpose of the darkness. Why did God shut out the lights? And the key word for that is judgment. In the scriptures, darkness is always associated with judgment. Now back in uh, John 12, Jesus said, walk while you have light, lest darkness come upon you. Why do you worry about darkness? Because darkness means judgment. Listen to him again as he speaks in John chapter 3. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. Now do you see that there's a, there's a problem with darkness? Darkness is, is condemnation, and the word there means judgment. It means this is a tribunal, this is God's court. Horror and darkness go together. Genesis 15:12 says, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. Now the horror of darkness is a precedent for the rest of Scripture that darkness is associated with evil, that darkness is associated with times of terrible trouble. In Joel chapter 2 it says, And I, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. When God spoke about vengeance on Israel because of their sins, he spoke through Amos and he said, Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is darkness and not light, as if a man did flee from a lion and a bear met him, or went into the house and leaned his hand on the wall and a serpent bit him. Shall not the day of the Lord be darkness and not light, even very dark and no brightness in it? Oh, there are many people that 
You know, they're looking for the Lord to come. They talk about the day of the Lord when the Lord comes. And he's telling these people here, if you don't know him as Savior, if you don't know who Jesus is, if you don't believe in the true God, you don't want that day to come. That day is a day of darkness for you. And it's a day of judgment on you. Another example we find in Matthew 25, 20. Jesus said, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And still another reference Jude gives to evil angels where he says, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness, under the judgment of that great day. And so you can see the connection here that darkness means evil, darkness means judgment. In the Bible, darkness and evil go together. Trouble and darkness, evil and darkness, sin and darkness, judgment and darkness. There is nothing good that happens in the dark. Now let me return to the story in Exodus 10 and those plagues on Egypt. There were eight plagues on Egypt in which Pharaoh refused to let Israel go. Every time his heart was hardened... And he kept refusing to hear God. But in each of those plagues, there was light. In every plague, for eight plagues, there was light. It was time, a time where Pharaoh could reverse himself. There was time for him to repent. There was time for him to obey God. He could have let Israel go. But let's turn here and let's see what happens. Exodus 10 verse 21. If you turn your Bibles there, there are eight plagues and there is no repentance. And then there comes a ninth plague. Exodus chapter 10 and verse number 21. And the Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Go down to verse number 28. It says, And Pharaoh said unto him, Get thee from me, take heed to thyself, see my face no more, for in that day that thou seest my face, thou shalt die. Now the last plague before the killing of the firstborn was a plague of darkness. Now it was at that point that, that Pharaoh said to Moses, You'll not see my face again. And what Pharaoh was doing, he was sealing his doom of judgment. Nothing was going to stop the wrath of God at that point. In the ninth plague, Pharaoh was not going to let Israel go. The darkness is an indication that judgment had come. And what happens next? There is a death cry that goes up throughout all the land of Egypt. So what was it that preceded the death of their firstborn? It was darkness. Darkness was the symbol of judgment. It's not going to change from that point. That had been sealed right there. The darkness came, and the next thing that's going to happen is that death of the firstborn. Now, also, though, we look at the defense against that judgment. What did Israel do? Well, they killed the Passover lambs, didn't they? They killed the Passover lambs, and that's their protection from God's judgment. Now, go back to Matthew chapter 27, and you see here how long that the darkness lasted. It's until 3 o'clock, that there's this thick darkness over all the land until 3 o'clock. And did you know that at 3 o'clock, that is the time of the killing of the evening sacrifice? That is when 
They kill the Passover lambs at 3 o'clock. How precise is God in this? Because Jesus was hanging on the cross and at the precise hour of 3 o'clock, he lifted up his voice and he cried out and he gave up his spirit to God and he was dead on the cross. How can anybody read the Bible and not see that, that the sovereign God is in control? He works everything after the counsel of his will. So first there was darkness, God shut out the light, and God's judgment fell. And it fell on his own son, which we'll talk some about the next time. It fell on the anointed of God. So what is the purpose of darkness? It's judgment. Well, we have two important purposes here in the judgment. And I want to give you this one, one this week. Next week we'll talk about the other one. And that second one cries in with his, tie, his, his cry in, in verse number 46. Now this first one... The first problem of darkness here is judgment on the people that put Jesus on the cross. From 12 o'clock to 3 o'clock is the end of three years of ministry of light. For three years, Jesus went up and down Galilee and Judea. You can't put a number on the miracles that Jesus did. John said there's so many of them that all the books in the world couldn't contain what Jesus did. In those three years, nobody had ever seen God's light in such a spectacular way. How brightly did the light shine? Well, Jesus is like this city that's built on a hill. It's a light that shines so brightly that it was impossible to miss. But the people hated the light. They wouldn't come to the light because every time that they did, Jesus convicted them. Every time that they came, he... he, reproved them for their sins. He rebuked them. And finally, rather than getting rid of their sin, what did they decide to do? They decided to extinguish the light. Get rid of the irritation. Get rid of the light. And so that's what they do here. So what did they do? They lie. They cheated. They consorted. Finally, they succeeded. God gave them exactly what they wanted, even though they thought they were doing it themselves. God overruled their their timing. You remember he handed Jesus over in the arrest. Jesus goes through two mock trials. They blackmailed Pilate to put him on the cross. And so now they've beaten him. They've humiliated him. He hung on the cross in nakedness and in shame. And then what does God do? Targets them for judgment. Stephen said just before he was stoned, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom have ye been the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the dispensation of angels and have not kept it. What does he say? All you people are just like Israel in the wilderness. You're just like your fathers, just like in the time of Jeremiah, Isaiah, and Amos, and just like in the time of Zechariah. You're not going to fare any better than your fathers did. God brought darkness because of their rejection, and that would be their end. Now, the Passover lamb was going to die. Jesus was going to die. He did it at 3 o'clock, but for most of them, there was no benefit. For the majority of them, there's no benefit. The darkness was even a symbol that Jewry had completely ended. You go down to verse number 51. When the Paschal Lamb died, the veil of the temple was torn in two. That's what Jesus' death did to the old Jewish system. 
So what does the scripture say about darkness? It also says it's accompanied by horror. In less than 40 years, the, the Romans rained down horror on Jerusalem and over one million Jews were killed. Why were they killed? Because they refused the light. So there's this thick darkness that fell. Luke says in chapter 23 that it was a darkness that caused some of them to smote themselves on the breast. I mean, they were genuinely afraid of this darkness. People aren't afraid of eclipses. People aren't afraid of winds, a Scirocco. They're afraid of darkness. Even today as an adult, you're afraid of darkness. You don't know what lurks in the dark. And still as adults, you know, we don't like to be in the dark. We're afraid of it. So a cosmic disturbance, that's something that caused people to be afraid. Turn out the lights of heaven and see what that does to those who shake their fist in the face of God. Now there's another interesting verse about darkness in Revelation 16.10, which says, And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast, that's the Antichrist, and his kingdom was full of darkness. And listen, they gnawed their tongues for pain. Darkness over and over. And so when darkness comes, just be aware that it's accompanied by fearful death. Look at verse 54 just briefly in Matthew 27. And when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, truly, this was the Son of God. Now as I close this morning, I need to do this, and that's to give you the contemporary analysis. What does all of this mean to us? Well, here, here's the awful conclusion. Without Jesus, you're living in a very dark night. You're living in the dark night of your soul. Death is approaching, and what you haven't done, you haven't taken care to walk in the light of the Son of God. That light is just beyond your grasp, the Bible says. People are walking in darkness, and that's because they love darkness rather than light. And so you, you may be content with your rejection of Christ right now and you may be going merrily along and you're shunning the light of Christ. And if that's where you are, you ought to be terribly afraid. If you're in the darkness, you need to be terribly afraid because there's no good that can come. Judgment follows it. I listened to one of our members the other day who said, when I was lost, I was afraid. I... He said, I couldn't really help thinking, what will happen to me when I die? I was witnessing to a man in San Diego, and, and he said, I'm afraid. I heard something on the radio the other day. He said, they ask a question, where are you going to go when you die? And he said, I can't get that question out of my head. And he said, I'm afraid. And well, he should be afraid, and you should be afraid. If you realize that you're in the darkness, the thing you have to do is reach out and say, Jesus, save me. Save me. Take me out of the darkness. And without Jesus, you are that unprofitable servant of Matthew 25, verse 30, where Jesus said, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But the good news in all of this is that there is a light that's shining. The glorious gospel of Jesus Christ is called the light. And the light penetrates the darkness of, of the human heart. That heart is so dark that only the light of the gospel can penetrate it. Now today what I've tried to do is show you that light. Jesus is that light 
come to the light while it's still shining and you can be a child of that light so what you can do is end the dark night of your soul and it's not too late to do that and I promise you that if right now you begin to realize that you are in the dark that 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 that, that you, you can't see like you want to see and there's something out there that you need and you know that you want that's proof that the Holy Spirit is already starting to bring you out of the light or out of the darkness he wants to show you the light and that's Jesus Christ come out of that darkness. Well, the Bible says that after the darkness, there's joy. Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. So weep for your soul if you don't know Christ. And then awaken to that light of God's bright morning. And you'll be able to say, today is the brightest day that there's ever been in my life. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for that light that so brightly shines through his gospel. That we walk today without you. People are in the dark and many don't even realize that. But we've tried to show today that that darkness is there. That the soul is just pitifully unsatisfied. And that every person without Christ is going to die in the darkness of their sin. Lord, help them to see that light. Help us to hold up Jesus so they can see the light and believe in that light and come to him. Lord, just bless us as we end these services today, as we sing. Just may that light of the gospel shine into someone's heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Probably not the normal Sunday morning sermon that you expect to hear. Talking about all this darkness and what could have caused darkness. Well, the main point is that Jesus hung on the cross. And in that three hours of darkness, that's when he made satisfaction to God for sin. That's why God shut out the lights. We'll talk more about it next week, but that's why God shut out the lights. He didn't want anybody to see his son as he went through the most terrible part of his suffering because then it's not, a, it's not what men, was doing, men were doing to him. It's what God did to him. It's a transaction that takes place between God and God in that darkness. And that's why you're never able to see it. That's why you'll never understand how it happened and what it is and actually what went on in the, in the mind of God, in that relationship between the Father and the Son when he died for sin. You ought to be eternally grateful that he was willing to do that and he suffered in the darkness to take away sin. I hope you see that today. I hope God spoke into your heart in some way. And if I'm just talking to Christians here and everybody, you know, we know that we're saved and thank God that you're reminded of it, what Christ did in the darkness. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org